chuckle babe. <laughs> and I don't doubt it because he expresses it emphatically and continually. So I'm confident in that. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Matthew Harlan. I know. He must have heard me whisper to my husband, I need water. But he didn't hear it. He just knew it because he's been standing up here before, parched, <laughs> and knows the need well. Well, we're starting a new series this, this week. Um, and just a small little pause in that. We're starting this week, but we're pausing next week because we have Chris Mino. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with Chris Mino, he's the former president of um, MFI, Massachusetts Family Institute, um, which is an organization under Tony Perkins. Um, so he's wonderful. He's an older gentleman. He was some, some big official something in the Air Force, pilot something, something. But it's amazing. And when you hear stories, it just makes your brain rattle and realize, like, you're really young and you haven't experienced a lot when you hear some of these things that he's experienced. So this is our new series that we're starting. And I have the joy of starting us off this week. Um, so what I'm going to do um, is I'm actually going to do a little bit of an overview biblically, and then I'm sure that once I do an overview, that as we continue in the series, we're really going to take more time on specific passages of scripture. Um, so what we're going to look at biblically is this concept and this um, reality scripturally of what it is to be a sojourner, but also the other word that you might find in scripture is to be a pilgrim or to be an alien, or to be a foreigner. And so I just want to identify that we have a really, really diverse group of people here. And so we might have some people here that um, are very new to the Christian faith. And when I say new, like this could be your first introduction to that. And so when we begin to talk about language or even vocabulary like this, it might kind of be like, what does this have to do with Jesus and the Bible and Christianity? Um, we also might have people that are not new to the Christian faith, um, but that have been raised in the Christian faith or are very familiar um, with the storyline of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, but still this language is very foreign to you and the understanding of it and wondering how it relates to us as a local body. But I want to say that the top topic that we are about to um, delve into for the next couple of weeks, I, and I want to say this to you very strongly, I feel like it's a topic of utmost importance because it truly defines how we live. How you view these passages of scripture and look at them and understand them and comprehend them and then um, wrestle to uh, live them and make them reality really determines how we live. And to be honest with you, I mean, we're, I, I'm not ignorant to the fact that Tuesday we have a national election that's taking place. And there's obviously, I just hope with all of the people that have drawn very strong lines <laughs> publicly, people can somehow find friendship afterwards. <laughs> because part of the reason that we're not even today using a Sunday morning to articulate or to go into something, I'm going to say what we're going to talk about biblically, according to the word of God, addresses our posture even in the elections and with whoever becomes president. Because to understand that there is such diversity 
of opinion. And I can say, even in the body of Christ, I have friends that are leaders in the United States, states and leading organizations. I have other friends that are working primarily in the Middle East. You know, with the diversity of hearing leaders, even in the body of Christ, people are weighing radically different issues. And some people, it, uh, some issues take precedence and they're at the forefront and they're willing to almost not look at other issues because of that one pressing thing. So a lot of it really comes down to very personal experience. Some of it comes down to whether you were born in the United States or born abroad. I mean, there there's huge, huge amount of diversity on issues. And it would be foolish of us to draw lines that would then alienate and isolate people. But I will say with that said is that from the context that we're looking at the word of God today, is that it is an answer for us in how we approach even major national uh, things that are taking place. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I know for whoever's doing the overheads, my husband likes one translation, but I actually <laughs> like the New King James. I mean, I might use other things. I'm not saying that I won't, but, but my preference is the New King James. So 2 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 11. We're just going to look very quickly at an overview here. Um, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Uh, verse 11, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here in First Peter, we find this language of sojourner and pilgrims here. And to understand that where it says that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that word special literally means peculiar. What does peculiar mean? It, it actually, I mean, in our English language, we understand it to mean something strange. Like, you're not the same as all of the, one of these things is not like the other. Do they still sing that? On? <laughs> no, you guys did not sing that song. I'm sure somebody in this room knows that. But peculiar. It literally means, but we think of it as an, an oddity of kind of like you stand out in a peculiar sense. But it literally means to be one's own possession like belonging to one, the possession of one, to be purchased or to be saved. So where he's saying his own special people, he's saying his own purchased people. He purchased you and now you are his possession. That's, that's a distinction right there. If you're even talking about how we relate to the world or the systems of this world, when we are a purchased people, we are his possession. We're marked that way. And then if you go on, it says that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you. That phrase is loaded. We could do all day on what it means to proclaim the praises 
of him who called you. Because the word proclaim literally means to tell forth, to declare abroad and aloud, to publish, to make known by praising or proclaiming or celebrating. It's to be a messenger it's one who's sent and a messenger from God. So when it's say, saying that our lives are to proclaim, it literally means that our lives should be displaying his praise, that our, our lives should be declaring his praise. I mean, we should ask ourselves, if, if, as we're looking in scripture today, if we consider ourselves a sojourner, a pilgrim, all of those things, one that is set apart, how is our life declaring his praises? How is our life a testimony and a declaration of his praise? Because the word praise literally means a virtuous course of delight, a feeling or action. It's um, moral goodness, any particular moral excellence, modesty, or purity, the excellence of one. So how is our life declaring and proclaiming his excellence? Then when it goes on to say the word sojourner actually means, a sojourner really, literally means to be a stranger. It means to be found as a stranger in one who lives in a place without citizenship. One who lives on earth as a stranger. In a Christian sense, it's one whose home is in heaven. You know, there's, a, there's an amazing book that I, I read years ago and it's a completely different subject matter like to delve into today, but um, the title of the book is called Cadence of Home. And what the author literally looks at biblically is the understanding of what it is to be a pilgrim or an alien as far as, because you can understand it in the Old Testament sense. If you've studied the Old Testament, you understand what it was to be taken captive and to be taken out of your original homeland and what it was to live in a land that was not your own and a people that did not honor your customs, and a people that did not speak your language, all of those kind of things. And so he looks at it, but he translates it into, as New Testament believers, how that relates to us and how there's such similarities. But really what we find here in the New Testament is that aside from the Old Testament reality that we can look at, we can see the New Testament reality, and what we're going to look more closely at is the way that Jesus lived and that this is truly the reality that he lived while he was on the earth. Um, Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. This is actually speaking of the heroes of the faith. I'm just kind of giving you guys a broad understanding before we look more closely at Jesus. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, to, to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So this is actually speaking of the heroes of the faith that many of you probably have heard of. And the interesting thing is oftentimes when we think of great men and great women of God, we often aspire to uh, their greatness or to the testimony that they possess. But when we understand that they lived the reality, that they confessed, but they also displayed the reality as living as strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Let's just be honest, that reality does not sound like a pleasant one, does it? 
It really doesn't. How many of you guys, we're, we're, we're coming upon Thanksgiving. I really, I actually thought about coordinating like a community trip to go to Plymouth Rock and bring us to uh, one of the original settlements. I mean, it's amazing when you actually, my son, I homeschool, we're right now kind of looking at the early settlements in the United States. And when you really look at the pilgrims and those that pioneered places, it's one of challenge, one of difficulty. You're away from all that is familiar. You're away from all of the comfort you're away from, and there's that sense of you truly are in a foreign place. How many of you guys have traveled to a foreign country? When, as much as it's exciting for a vacation, <laughs> can you imagine if you had to assimilate yourself into that new place as your new reality? Nothing about that feels good. I mean, I totally enjoy traveling for short stints, but like there comes a point where there is, isn't that, I just want to go home. Most of you, I don't care how fractured, broken, terrible the reality of home was for you, that sense of home is familiar. And it's, it's the place where we find rest. It's the place where we find identity, is that place of home. And that is precisely what we're talking about when we're talking about being sojourners and foreigners and aliens and pilgrims, is where is our identity found? Are we finding our identity in this earth and in this, this present geographical location or is I, our identity somewhere else and that's where we're longing to be and that's where we find home? Where is home for us? Where does your heart find home? You know, I'm going to say, and this is why I, I feel very strongly, I know that there's some of us here that maybe this concept is not new to you, but if you are here today, I, I actually want to give us a very brief even overview of the gospel because I'm in the process right now of sharing the gospel, gospel with somebody in my own personal life that it's amazing to me to see the amount of wrestle, the amount of hardship, the amount of pain the amount of suffering that they have endured, but yet they still say, God is not for me. That is not what I want. I may be going through all of this hell. It's, it's not because they have a false sense of comfort or joy in this world. There's nothing but pain. And you know what I love? Because all of you guys know, I, I can remember when sharing the gospel was only done face to face. Like I was sitting down to coffee with you, sharing the gospel, or I was walking in the mall with you. Now, because, you know, we all text so much, it's amazing to be able to text someone in just a one-liner and drop it and not have to say anything else. Just kind of, I'm going to put that phone down right now. Like, <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I was saying to this person, and, which is awful and painful to say in person, and I don't know if I could with eye contact, is I simply said, you are going to continue to fight until your f soul finds rest in God. Because that's what's happening. They're fighting everyone around them. All of the world is chaos and uproar and pain and tragedy. But you know what the core issue is? They say they're not interested in God, but that is the issue that they're facing right now. It has nothing to do with family or marriage or children or jobs or finances. It has everything to do with our soul finding rest in God. I mean, that's hard to say to somebody one-on-one because -on -one, then that's painful and kind of confrontational and slightly awkward. And then what do they say to that? You know, and as we were kind of having this, this discourse about God and how, I, and I basically said, keep on fighting. Just keep on fighting. And when you're tired of the wrestle, you know where the answer is found. You'll find rest in God. Okay, drop the button. Okay. <laughs> I'll come back and see later. <laughs> 
But the, the, the reality of it is, and in, in through this conversation that I was having, you know, when it kind of came down to their views of God and, you know, their views of the church and all of these things, one of my simple responses was, sin is insanity. It's just insanity because you're created for God. You're created to be with God. You're created for relationship with God. And anything outside of that is insane. I mean, do you believe it's really that simple? I mean, most of you are like, I don't, I'm not sure about that. No, it is, it is that simple. It's that simple because what it produces in your life is pain and brokenness. I'm not saying that there isn't a reality of sometimes suffering or hardship that we might have, even in our walk with God or when we're walking with God. That's a very real reality. You know, there's sickness and all of those things. But the, the stark difference is, is that you are walking with a man through it. A man that will, and by that man, I mean Jesus Christ. You are walking with the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are seeing things completely differently. You are viewing things altogether differently because you're not confined to these 80 years that you have upon this earth. It's not simply about your bank account or the house that you live in or any of these present realities. He's able to give you a perspective that is far beyond. And therefore, what does that mean? You're able to have peace in the midst of it. I mean, let me just say, peace in the midst of tragedy, and I'm not talking like that we don't cry and that we don't have human emotion. I'm not, uh, you're real. You, you, you have pain. There's areas my husband and I have pain over things that we're seeing and facing. But you know what? That doesn't mean that, that we're robbed of our sense of peace in the midst of it. And that's what is totally other than this world. Because that's ultimately what this world is lacking, is that sense of peace. Because how many of you guys know you can have all of the outward things stacked up right? Your favorite candidate can win the election. <laughs> you know, all of those external things can be in place, and you're still lacking inner peace. And it's because it's a man that we are called to be reconciled to. And this is what we find with the heroes of the faith, that they had hardship, they had difficulty, they had challenges, and all of those things. But what do we find? is we find that they lived as sojourners so they understood this world is not my home. They were living for a home that was to come. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who have set their minds on earthly things. That's pretty simple right there. Did you catch that? It wasn't like who have dabbled in the occult. <laughs> it, it, it was as simple as they have set their mind on earthly things. Let's ask a question today as people. If we're truly sojourners, if we're pilgrims, if we're foreigners in this world, what is it that we're setting our mind on? What consumes our mind and our thoughts and our affections and our desires? What consumes our motives? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on, on earthly things. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also wait for the Savior, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able, able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, for those of you that may be here today, we're going to, now we're stepping, we're going to look at the life of Jesus specifically, but if, if you have never heard the gospel message in its simple form, I actually, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Genesis Oh, my. Somebody wrote a check out to me. <laughs> There's like a check in my Bible. I don't even know who it's from. Oh, nice. Seed offering. <laughs> Made out to Bethany Temple. I have no idea who put this in my offering. Oh, it must have been while I was in Col. No, maybe in your It must have been while I was in Colorado. Some sneaky student or somebody. Um, I know, like a check. Hello? <laughs> Gifts, surprises, and finding money. I say that when I open the mail. <laughs> the church that we used to go to we used to have this, like, I don't know, even know what it was. We used to have to read it every Sunday, but it was like, you know, uh, I believe God's words. And as I sow my seed of God today, I'm going to be overflowing joy. You know, you do your whole, like, chant. Gifts, surprises, and finding money. That's the only part I remember. So <laughs> every. <laughs> So every once in a while when I go to the mail, I'm like looking at a stack of bills. <laughs> I'm like, gift surprises and finding money. <laughs> God is your source. Um, clearly, checking my Bible. <laughs> Allegra goes, I'm going to try that. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little tangent. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> okay, so Genesis. This is we're gonna bring it all back to, for you. If if there's anybody here that does not understand the s- simplicity of the gospel, this is it for you. So we have Adam and Eve. I'm gonna summarize this for you. God forms Adam. God forms Eve. They're walking. It it says that they walk in the cool of the day. They're walking with God. Imagine face-to-face communion. No, like, wrestle of your flesh and your soul and your emotions and your carnal mind and all this stuff that's enmity towards him to try to, like, get there. Just you are in perfect union in one accord because you have no sin. No sin nature. That's just craziness right there. So this is how they're living. And then we find ch- chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more... Did you, let me see, because I wasn't planning on sharing this with you, but I just realized I should. Okay, so God gives them the command. And in the command, he basically says, of all the trees of the garden, you may eat. And then he points to one tree. And he says, except this one. That's pretty simple, right? Like, you can have it all. It's all accessible. It's all available. It's all yours. Just this one tree is off limits. It's going to speak to all of us right here, right now. <laughs> now, the, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, so here he is, the serpent, comes to Eve. Yes, it was Eve, the woman. Sisters, pay attention. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of, of every tree of the garden? So here he goes, he like misquotes God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, of the t- fruit of the trees of the garden. 
but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Here we go. I want everybody to say out loud, God has said. You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. So here, this is Eve. Eve's doing good right here. Let's all cheer for Eve. Good response, Eve. Yahoo, Eve. So this is Eve's response. She nails it. Like, you got it, Sister Eve. So she says, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's like, nope, we can eat it. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. So she says, God has said. I I want you to get that right there. She's saying the source of that information is God. He's the final authority. And because he said it, it's true. She's at this point now just saying, God said it. It's that simple. God said it. So therefore, she's willing to trust and obey. God said it. Therefore, she's honoring the fact that he is all wise, all knowing. He knows way more than she does. And she's just going back to the very source. I want, I want you to make a mental note. She's going back to the source that it's God who said it. So therefore, if God said it, it's good. If God said it, you can count on it. You can bet your life on it. So here, I love, God has said. That's wise, Eve. Just stay right there, Eve. Fight for God has said. <laughs> Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So what do we see? What Eve then, in verse 5, she moves to the results. She goes away from the source and the absolute wisdom of what God says. And you know what she does? This is called pragmatism. She decides to judge and assess the situation based upon what is the end result. What will the end result be for me? And now, according to that end result, I will weigh and I will determine if this is wise and if this is good. So based upon her carnal mind of what she could see and what she could know and what she could assess, she moves, moves from God has said, that simplicity to saying what God has said, and she moves into the place of from what she could perceive and see and understand, it was good. So I'm going to make a decision upon what I see. I'm going to make a decision based upon how I'm assessing this situation. And if the result is not actually death... And she actually says that the fruit looked good. Didn't look like it was going to strike her dead or any of those things. So she moved, in that, and that's truly, and all of us can relate to this in some way, a, a pragmatic approach to things. Instead of just taking the simplicity and the authority of God's word, we weigh it according to our own assessment or our own understanding or our, or, or our own data. And we, we gauge what is the end result if I do it this way. I might be able to hide the fact that I did it and no one will ever know, so then I'm going to get away with it. And what could be so bad? You know, we get into that place of reasoning, and it's the pragmatic approach that ultimately in, in, in humanity we can find in all of us instead of just sticking to the simplistic innocence of God has said. So here what you have, my friends, if you 
have not heard the gospel is you have sin just entered the world. And what happened? Adam and Eve, they go and they basically hide because all of a sudden what happens? Exactly like God says, their eyes were opened. Now they know good and evil. They didn't even know evil existed before. They didn't even know bad or anything about the fall and, and Lucifer and the fallen angels. There was, it was like perfect bliss. They were living in a blissful existence of innocence. Could you imagine if you were restored to perfect innocence? That is amazing. And that is precisely why Jesus came. That is why Jesus came. Because we are in need of a savior. Our eyes were then opened to good and evil, bad and good, you know, all of these things and the weighing process. We were separated from God. And let's just back the bus up. We were created to be in fellowship with God. When you are living outside of fellowship with God, you are li living outside of the created order of what you were fashioned and designed. And therefore, that is why we have humanity that is frustrated, discontent, ends up worshiping self and other things because we are created to be in awe of something. We are created to be fascinated. You know, the very person that fashioned your spirit and your soul, we are such intricate, intricate beings. I mean, it is far beyond science to understand the, the soul of mankind, to understand the very spirit of mankind. And he is the one that created us to live in fellowship with him. And when we're living outside of fellowship with him, we're living outside of what he created us for. There, there's chaos in the universe. And so what did he do? He, he, ha he had this plan. He had this design. This is what he ordained, is that he decide, d d decided that, how many of you guys know the story of Mary? The Immaculate Conception, that I, it's, it's, the whole storyline is amazing, if you've never heard it. <laughs> but there, there is a virgin. She's never known a man the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and there is Jesus. He's perfectly God and perfectly man. He walks on the earth as a sinless human. He has all, the word of God is very clear. He has all of the temptation. He has all of the struggle. He, he, it says that he was in every point acquainted with all of your challenges, with all of your pain. But yet he walked in perfect obedience to the Father. And because of that, he goes as a sinless sacrifice to the cross. He gives his life on behalf of mankind so that we can be reconciled. He, he was the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice, that now we have access to God. Is that the most majestic, mysterious, awe-inspiring reality that you've ever heard? It should cause our hearts to be in awe and wonder continually of what has been purchased, and not awe and wonder in a sense of how, can, how do I calculate this and explain this? Like, how does his blood now, da-da? You know, it's all spiritual, and it's, it's the most fascinating thing you will actually ever hear, or the most fascinating thing you could ever share with another living soul. But oftentimes, we've never taken the time to ponder on the power of the cross. I, I think most of us have never even fully embrace that we are sinful people that need a savior, somehow it kind of came out of, or our salvation came out of a crisis moment of, I, I need a crutch, or I need something to help me through, I need a warm fuzzy to get me there. 
Instead of understanding that we are sinners and we are doomed. We are doomed to our own ways. We are doomed to our own uh, understanding and our frail wisdom. We are doomed to our own carnal appetites. We are doomed without a savior who saves us, but then he redeems us and he restores us. He calls us unto himself and then he makes us like him. That is amazing. And so what we find is that the entirety of Christian faith is we have been called unto a man that walked upon the earth and he is set up as our great example. That you don't have to wonder, and what does Christianity look like? What, what does it really, you just read the word. You read the life of Jesus. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, this is what we find. If you want to turn with me, Matthew chapter 4. Turn Matthew chapter 4. You're going to hear the wisdom of Jesus here and how he lived. For those of you that aren't familiar, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And later his parents moved to Nazareth. But he truly and specifically all throughout scripture would say, not identify himself with a specific home. He wasn't identifying himself with a specific homeland. But he did say in Luke chapter 9, 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Notice where Jesus often spent the night. In Luke 21, 37, it says, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all of the people came to him at the temple to hear him. So here we find Jesus declares that um, foxes have holes and the birds of air, air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then we find later in scripture, it's speaking of the fact that he would be teaching in the temple and that he would actually go out to the Mount of Olivet and spend the night there in the place of prayer and then come back in the morning to teach. We'd find this all throughout scripture as his rhythm and his routine. You, you would be hard-pressed. I've looked and I've searched to be able to find a place where Jesus identified as home. The place where he finds rest. And you know, in our American culture and society, that, that is truly the epitome of everything that we live for. Is, is the, the place that most of you in this room, if you're not married, your big thing is I want to find my mate and I want to buy a home. I want a home. And your sense of home is with that mate and creating a family. And, a, and then for those of you that are married, you found your mate. Some of you want to purchase a home and you think once I purchase that home, I'm finally going to have like my nest, like my, all my favorite stuff all amassed in one place. It's just, just a dream come true. Then you have that sense of home, and then all of a sudden you realize, I don't know, it's just not all about this stuff. Somehow this stuff is not satisfying me. This stuff has to be maintained. It gets broken, and it has to be dusted. All of a sudden, you don't want all that stuff. <laughs> Most of us, the issue and the complexity of, of what we're searching for, wrestling for, fighting for, and then some of us are living our whole lives to maintain is that, that essence of home. You know, I have a lot of friends that live in parts of Africa and the Middle East, even with small, small children. And they're, they technically were U.S. born, but from being missionaries and now traveling the world, they can't seem to find a sense of where they belong and where they fit. They no longer feel like the U.S. is home. 
Africa definitely feels like home now, but they're not Africans. They don't look like Africans. All, I, I hear this over and over again, and you know what I continually tell these mothers that are like, what am I doing to my children? What am I, they have no sense of belonging. It, where is their citizenship? I continually tell them you are preparing them to live as though they truly have their citizenship in heaven. No attachment to something in this age where we can find our identity and lock ourselves in. And this is what we find the example of Jesus. This is how Jesus lived his life. This is what we are called to. I'm not saying Jesus didn't have a place where he might have had a bed that he got to go lay in and that was his place a home, but it's clearly not highlighted. It's clearly not spoken about in scripture. It's clearly not something was like, that's like, oh, I go to my home and that's where I pray every day. No, he's going out to some mountain in the place of solitude to pray. He's outdoors all night long. I mean, that doesn't sound to me like he's got a comfy prayer room in his house <laughs> that he can choose. So here we find in Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when, he was, he, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So can you imagine 40 days, no food or water? Most of you, if somebody said, command these stones, they're going to become, you'd you be on that. <laughs> I'm going to command those stones. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> Don't ask for forgiveness afterwards for obeying the devil. You know, it, that place of desperation of not having any food or water. So there he's offered food. And basically, you have the power to turn these stones into bread. And what did he say? It, it's, in verse 4, it says, and he answered and said, it is written. It is written. This is Jesus. Jesus didn't come up with like his own eloquent wisdom of what he wanted to prophetically utter in a, a revelation from on high. He simply goes back to the written word of God. And he goes, it is written. So clearly he knew the word and he was living by the word. That was his authority. He was going back to the authority of the word here. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to live by that which comes from God and God alone. That's all that I'm going to live for. That's all that gives me life is what proceeds from the mouth of God. I mean, we don't have time. I'm clearly, I'm on, on like the intro here and <laughs> we need to start wrapping it up, but just on these three points of how Jesus answered, we find him truly living as a sojourner. Because it was not so much about his comfort or his food or what he could acquire or could attain. He was living by a completely different reality. And here he's declaring, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me ask you this day, if we're living as sojourners, are we living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Is that where we're finding our strength and finding our clarity? If that, is that where we're finding our perspective? Is that where we're having our emotions lined up is according to the word of God by every word? How many of us wake up in the morning with that kind of desperation of, God, I live by the words that proceed from your mouth. I cannot live outside your word. How many of us feel that place of famine that when we go through our day of thinking, I have not just encountered the presence of Jesus today. I'm going to put it all on pause until my heart encounters him. 
I can tell you, one of, aside from anything else that I do outside of the four walls of my house, I'm, I am desperately committed that my son would be, from his young tender age, understand the necessity of encountering God's presence daily that his heart would be cultivated in the word daily. I'm going to say to you, he's seven years old. I can't expect when he's 13, 14, 15 and in crisis, all of a sudden, Abram, you better get a prayer life, buddy. Now's your time. No, if he's bored and disconnected when he's in his teenage years, probably at that point, unless God supernaturally, what do I do? Put him in his room for a timeout until he reads the word? No, no, no. I'm hoping by that time he'll have a heart that has come alive in the word. I'm hoping by that time that where Jesus said that he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm wanting a little young man that by the time that he's trying to navigate life's issues at 15 and 16, he's literally saying, I cannot live outside of the words that proceed from the mouth of God. I have to know his will. I have to know his mind. Because guess what? Anything outside of him is insanity. But how many of us, you know what it is? We're so educated and so wise and so, we're so full of so much information in our technological age. We don't like simplicity. We almost think that somehow when it's simple and so simple, it's insulting our intelligence. It has to be more complex than that. There has to be more to the... No, a child can get it. We cannot live outside of only that which proceeds from the mouth of God. If it does not come from the mouth of God, then it's not for me. It's not for you. You're, you're not going to have wisdom. You're not going to have clarity. You're going to create chaos in your home, in your family, in your work environment. But there's a dependency that we would live by that which proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus had this. And he literally is saying, it is written. You know what I want? I, you don't have to say it out loud. But next time you're in a fight or a debate or next time you're trying to come up with your answer to something, in your own mind, if you can't scripturally come to a resource of what is written in the word, I want you to, in your mind, say, it is written. Well, what is written? It is written. I need something to pull on here. What was written? It is written. It's simple. It's wise. And it, it, it's so simple that it's almost f foolishness to us. Jesus goes back to the authority of the word. Son of God, perfectly God, perfectly man. He doesn't deviate in his own wisdom or, you know, how he wants to pontificate on all of his things that he can teach and say. He says, it is written. Then the de devil took him up to a holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. <laughs> Don't you love Satan here? Now he's going to play his own game. <laughs> it is written. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know what I want to say? Each one of these points just show how Jesus is living as a sojourner. Because right here where Satan literally tempts him, if you really are the son of God, go ahead and prove yourself. How many of us are living in this present life to prove ourselves? Bishop Green said that last week. For those of you that don't know, he leads a black church here in Cambridge. He was raised in Cambridge. He talked about the busing that he remembers as a child. I mean, he shared so much but he literally said it wasn't until later in his years in ministry of building a church, and he is a bishop, he has several other churches around the world. What he said was, he said, I realized I was being driven by the voice of someone that said something racist to me as a child. 
I was forever being, even in ministry, I was being driven to prove myself and my ability and my success in those things. And that's the question, what is driving us? If there was something driving Jesus to prove himself, that he had to prove who he was and what he could do and his ability and his significance, that would have struck a chord in the heart of Jesus to then enter into the flesh and start moving that way. But instead it touched nothing in him. Absolutely nothing inside of his identity is rooted and grounded in appearances. And that's really what it means to be a sojourner, is that we're not living before the eyes of man, of how man sees us and how he assesses us and how he gauges our success or significance. So this is where Jesus responded in verse 7 and says, it is written, um, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He goes back to the authority. And so what do you think for his final response, Jesus? And again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Um, just for time's sake, I think I'm actually going to pause here. We were going to then go on to chapter 5 and look at the Sermon on the Mount, and then Jesus really blows it up <laughs> as far as not living according to this age and according to the systems of this age. I would encourage you this week, meditate on Matthew 5. It is so contrary to our earthly systems and the way that we do things in this world. But this is what I, I want to, I want, I'm going to pause right here before we, this was actually point one. So I'm so sorry we didn't get to the rest of our message. I want to pause right here because this place of the fact that Jesus lived as a sojourner and he lived as a pilgrim, but I, I, I want you to understand something. He was able to live that kind of life because his life was rooted and grounded in the word. He was living according to the reality of the word of God, not according to the reality of trends and how they change, not according to his feelings or his perspectives. He was forever going back to the authority of the word. And we find even here in these three points that he's tempted, he's not moved. He's not moved and he's not governed by anything other than the authority of the word of God. And there's two groups of people here that I just want to pray for today as we're closing out. Number one, if you're here and you've actually never come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner who needs a savior, and that's ultimately what this whole entire life is about, he's pursuing you. He's graciously, compassionately, relentlessly pursuing you. And every situation in your life has literally been orchestrated for him to say, I am what you have need of. I am the answer to every single one of your problems, and I can save you from yourself. Because you know you need saving from yourself? Left to your own ways. The word of God says that there is a way that seems right unto men, unto men and, in the and in the end it only leads to death. That's precisely what happened to Eve. It looked right to her, didn't it? And what did it lead to? It led to the opening of the door of sin, the fall of man, and then all of us going with her. <laughs> But if you're here today, and even this presentation of just understanding that Jesus lived as a sojourner, this is what you are called into. 
I'm not presenting a gospel as in calling you to um, some bless me club that's if you sign up, it's all going to go your way. And Jesus is like a big fat Santa and you can just give him your list and and read it off and he's going to answer it all. No, I'm saying that Jesus was the example and we're called to live as he lived. And the way that you find that he, he lived, he did not live according to this world and all that we see. You know, some of you here might be like, well, if you're so heavenly minded, you'll never be any earthly good. Let me just say something. When you, if you truly understand this perspective of what it means to be a sojourner, when you truly have eyes on your home that is in heaven, you, I'm going to say this very clearly to you, you will have a burden for the souls of man. And you will preach the gospel to others because you have a clear vision of heaven and you want others to go there. So you will be the most active in ministry in the preaching of the word. It will not cause you to be inactive and pie in the sky. I just can't wait to get to heaven. No, you'll be wanting to plunder all of hell to bring souls to heaven with you. But part of the reason that we don't have a burden for souls is because we do, we're not heavenly minded. And I read you this one last passage of scripture. Colossians 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not of things of this earth. That word mind literally means your affections. It means set your thinking and your meditations, but it literally means set your passions. Are our passions on things that are above? Are they for our next promotion and our next degree and our next new car? Are our passions on things that are above? Or are our passions burning for our appearances before man and how we become more significant and more successful? It completely redefines our life when our affections are set on things that are above. And so, like I said, for those of you that the gospel may be a new, new idea to you, you've never heard it clearly, but there's those here today that maybe you have heard the gospel and you are a Christian, but you can honestly say, I do not have my affection set on things that are above. I live for this world. I live for my next meal. I live for my TV show that I'm addicted to and I need it more than I need the word of God. Some of us live such, such temporary and confining lives when we're called to live lives that are engulfed with the eternal. And so those two groups of people, I want to pray for us here today. Why don't you just stand to your feet? You don't have to come forward. Just stand to your feet. One, two, three. To your feet, we're going to pray. 